This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. He bemoaned the lack of civility in society, and yet no justice was more caustic or sarcastic in his opinions. I mean, the kinds of things that he wrote were things that you just don't normally hear in Supreme Court opinions. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover many, if not most, of those things for Slate. And as we contemplate the shape of the court in light of Justice Kennedy's retirement, there's been an awful lot of speculation out there that Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee may bear a remarkable ideological resemblance to the late Justice Antonin Scalia. So with that in mind, I wanted to bring you a conversation about the legacy and intellectual history of Justice Scalia, with the caveat that we taped this a little bit before Justice Kennedy made his announcement. That said, this is an incredibly useful way to think about this Antonin Scalia-sized hole at the Supreme Court that Donald Trump will be trying to fill this September. Rick Hassan is a friend of Amicus, and he's appeared on this show to talk about voting rights and gerrymandering many times. He teaches law and political science at UC Irvine School of Law. But this conversation is not about voting. It's about the mind of Antonin Scalia, and it is from his latest book, The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption, which was published this past spring. So welcome back to the podcast, Rick Hassan. Thank you. It's always great to be with you. So, so I love the premise of uh, your book, which is that Scalia kind of prefigures Donald Trump in a lot of important ways. He's a disruptor. He comes in and he reshapes the whole judicial branch with his whole name-calling, bombastic, anti-elitist, populist thing. And he was doing it long before Donald Trump made it cool. That's the premise, correct? Yeah, that's one of the premises. I might say the other one is that he was the justice of contradictions. You've picked up on the disruption point. But that he often said he was going to do one thing and for one reason or another didn't follow through and ended up doing the opposite. So so let's get to that in a second. But I want to – I think I want to ask you this question. I think your book – really captures something. And I think you and I even talked about it after Scalia died, which is in the days and weeks after he died, the the commentary tended to be all hagiography from acolytes on the, the political right and real, I think, sometimes vicious grave dancing from people on the left and, and people like you and people like me who were trying to find a seam between those two things and to say, on the one hand, singularly important uh much loved, on the other hand, uh, took some positions that 
made life in America less good for people. Uh, we, we tended, I think, trying to do that middle space work to get shelled from both sides. And I wonder if your book, which is very much in keeping with that spirit of I don't want to talk about cartoonish versions of Scalia. I want to talk about the man himself. Are, are you taking it from both sides as well? No, I don't think so. I think I'm taking it much more from the right than the left, because what's happened with Scalia since his death is that all of those rough edges, all of those contradictions have kind of fallen off for those who admire him, and he's become even more admired. And, um, you know, you just look at Justice Gorsuch and look at many of the lower court judges that Trump has appointed. I mean, they really looked to say, you know, Scalia had found the Holy Grail. He had found the method for interpreting constitutional cases, his public meaning originalism. He'd found the holy grail for understanding texts, and he had done so in a way that was the only right way and the only way that is really permissible under the Constitution for judges to act. And so any attack, any nuance uh, aimed at Justice Scalia uh, is really an attack on the new orthodoxy uh, among those ju- judges and justices on the right. Well, I think, you know, the perception on the left is, yeah, you know, there were things about Scalia that were worth admiring. For example, he was a good writer. But uh, Erwin Chemerinsky, for example, my former dean and uh, good friend, didn't find any of Scalia's writing delicious the way I did. But, you know, but that's much less of a critique than the kind of very bitter critique that the book is getting by those on the right. So, so you flagged, and I, I want to tease it out, that, that in the end, this is a book. It's not, you know, the biography. It's uh, an intellectual deep dive and, and deeply, I think, engaging, as you just n- mentioned, with this originalism, with this apparatus of textual interpretation that Justice Scalia was very proud of. He staked his... I think, sort of moral and and legal career on the idea that he could take himself out of the equation because he had this very formalistic, mechanical way of looking at, you know, original public meaning, uh, looking at the text of a statute or of the Constitution. And that meant that Scalia himself vaporizes from the equation and whatever personal preferences he may have, whatever his, you know, he would talk about his religious views don't uh, inflect his political views. Nothing really affects anything because he's got this lens and it's purely mechanical. And I think in a profound way, the book is an engagement with that claim. Um, And I wondered before we really dig into that claim, if you could give an example of a place where I think you make the point that that was sometimes a a convenient claim, but not a truthful claim, uh, that sometimes his originalism would have taken him in a different direction and he was much more outcome driven than that. So give us an example just so that I think we're all reacting to the same data. Sure. Uh, So, you know, I think the best example is, it's actually three examples, is uh, Justice Scalia's uh, use of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment comes after the Civil War. And the question is, you know, what does it mean in different contexts when a state must uh, give each person equal protection of the laws? So his originalist uh, view is that you ask what the words meant at the time in social context. And so he has said, for example, that 
sex discrimination, discrimination on the basis of gender, would not be protected under the 14th Amendment, even though the words themselves, equal protection to all people, seems like it would. He said because nobody at the time of the ratification, in the, in talking about the 1860s, would have thought that it would have extended to women. And so there he's doing a kind of social context reading and, and historical reading and not just a pure textual reading. And yet, when it came to something like affirmative action, uh, he would do a pure textual reading and say, well, the uh, equal protection clause, equal means equal, and you can't give benefits to one uh, group of people based on their race or their ethnicity. On this particular point, we know that Scalia was challenged, including by one of his uh, liberal clerks, he used to sometimes hire what are known as a, a counter clerk, a, a liberal clerk to keep him honest. And one of these clerks, a guy who's now a professor at the University of Michigan, uh, Gil Seinfeld, wrote him a memo and said, look, there's a, there's a whole historical set of research which shows that at the time of the uh, ratification of the 14th Amendment, Congress passed laws that gave benefits to newly freed slaves, a kind of a form of affirmative action. Now, you may not think that's persuasive in terms of what the social context was and the original public meaning was, but you should at least respond to this. And Scalia never responded to the memo, never mentioned this in any of his affirmative action cases. Uh, and just to give a third example, uh, what about separate but equal? Now, what about the fact that at the time that the Constitution, uh, the, the constitutional amendment was uh, ratified in the 1860s, uh, Congress approved separate schools for whites and African Americans. So if you're going to take social context into account, take it into account all the time. And when Scalia was pushed on this point by Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center at some uh, at what Rosen referred to as a uh, convival dinner, uh, Scalia just gave a belly laugh and said, well, no theory is perfect. Uh, but, th you know, this just shows you that um, Scalia had a theory, as you said, which purportedly takes the judge out of the equation, lets the judge, in the, the words of Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who's not an originalist, call, just call balls and strikes and, and actually injects the judge back into the process and, and decides what to do about um, conflicting textual and historical meanings. And I should say, and sometimes Scalia would be confronted with an originalist argument by Justice Thomas, who was the other originalist on the court when he sat on the court, and he would just not join those or not even engage with the originalist argumentation of Justice Thomas, which makes no sense if you have a theory that's supposed to apply across the board. Although that's interesting because I think one of the discussions that you raise is the difference between Scalia's originalism and Thomas's originalism is because originalism means so many things to, to so many different people. It, it kind of depends on what you throw in the bucket, right? So you have you describe situations where he and Thomas, just because they're looking at completely different data sets uh, come out with totally different and each claims originalist answers, right? Well, so sometimes that's the case. So one example here is a case called uh, Brown versus uh, uh, Entertainment's Merchants Association about California's ban on the sale of violent video games to minors. This is the case where Justice Alito, as I talk about in the book, makes this snarky comment at oral argument where he says, what I think Justice Scalia wants to know is what... Um, uh, James Madison would have thought of, of violent video games. Did he enjoy them? Uh, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of a dig at uh, Scalia's methodology. But in that case, um, Scalia says, uh, no, what I want to know is, was there an exception at the time of the uh, passage of the First Amendment for violence? Anyone think that there was an exception to the First Amendment for violence? He concludes there wasn't, and that's the end of it. Where Justice Thomas goes off on this 
very long discussion about whether, which which was barely mentioned in any of the, uh, it was mentioned in one amicus brief, not mentioned in oral argument, um, on whether children have the same First Amendment rights as their parents. And he's citing Thomas Jefferson, and he goes pages and pages and pages. And Scalia just gives this the back of his hand with uh, basically saying, well, we resolved that issue in another case, and we're not going to get into that. So uh, that was an example where they had a kind of different originalist reading. But sometimes it was a question about whether the precedent that the court had set in the past should be displaced in uh, uh, and in its place use an originalist analysis. And the best example here is a case involving gun rights. Uh, many of uh, your listeners are probably familiar with the Heller case, which was the case that Justice Scalia wrote, one of the cases he was uh, he said he was most uh, proud of, which was the case that recognized the Second Amendment as containing an individual right to bear arms. But there was a follow-up case, a case called McDonald, which involved the question of whether the Second Amendment, which apply, applied for sure against the federal government, also applied against the states. And there was this big effort to lobby Justice Scalia to say, yes, it applied to the states, but not in the way that most um, judges say that the Bill of Rights applies against the states, even though states are not mentioned. And that way is through something called substantive due process, reading the 14th Amendment to uh, incorporate these uh, requirements against the states. But instead, through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which is another part of the 14th Amendment, which we don't hear a lot about because back in the 1870s, the Supreme Court essentially said, uh, this, th- there's nothing to this that we can, we can't do anything to protect people's privileges or immunities. So Scalia was asked to, to extend the, the Second Amendment gun rights to the states through this privileges or immunities clause. And at, at oral argument, he's very annoyed with Alan Gora, the lawyer who's making this argument, says, what are you, a law professor? You're trying to score points. What are you doing here? And in his opinion, Scalia gets rid of this in literally one sentence and says, yeah, well, I've already said I acquiesce in applying substantive due process even though he doesn't acquiesce, for example, on abortion rights or, or anything else. And then Justice Thomas goes off pages and pages and pages, willing to uh, take the Privileges or Immunities Clause argument, which, if taken seriously by other originalists, could radically transform our understanding of what the Constitution means. So uh, I say in the book that Thomas is the originalist that maybe Scalia would have been if, if he was willing to really follow through on everything he said. And most of the criticism of Scalia on the right is that Scalia was not Scalia enough. It, it brings to mind what Scalia told Nina Totenberg in 2008, which was, I'm an originalist and I'm a textualist, but I'm not a nut. Right. The implication being that Clarence, Clarence is the nut. Is in fact a nut. Um, yes. W- w- one of the things that I think uh, sort of leeches through a lot of, of your analysis is this question, and I think it's too soon to judge, but this question of how much influence uh, Scalia has. And I think um, in the spring, you and uh, Linda Greenhouse came to kind of different conclusions about whether Scalia is going to ultimately be as influential uh, as we expected him to be. And I think that that leads to your exploration in the book of how influential can you really be if, A, everybody now claims to be an originalist, but they're doing different stuff than you, and B, uh, if you can't get five votes because you're elbowing everybody all the time. So let's engage with those one at a time. Uh, I think that you're right, and I agree with you, that you know the famous expression is we're all uh, originalists now, 
and Elena Kagan is originalist and Steve Breyer is an originalist. But it just doesn't because it's not as rigorous uh, as Scalia would like it to be, because even Scalia and Thomas don't agree what's in the toolbox and how to deploy it. Maybe it doesn't matter that we're all originalists now. Is that is that, in fact, uh, where you come down on this? Well, you know, I think the statement that Kagan made was that we're all textualists now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think she's claimed that we're all originalists now. And, and you know, you have uh, judges on the court, uh, justices on the court who are very conservative, like Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts, who are not originalists. Um, and yet, uh, if you look, I, I think I take it's the 2013 term, there were 16 five to four cases. And 15 of the 16, Alito and Scalia agree even though Alito's not a, an originalist. In only one of the 16 do Scalia and Ginsburg agree. And so I think a much better predictor of how a judge is going to actually vote is not whether or not they call themselves an originalist or a textualist, but whether they were appointed by a Democratic or Republican president. So in that sense, right, originalism doesn't matter. You see, for example, Justice Stevens in uh, Citizens United, the case involving corporations and campaign money, or in Heller, the gun case uh, involving the individual right to bear arms. Justice Stevens makes originalist arguments, and Scalia just rejects them as bad originalism. Uh, so, so in some ways, the you know the originalism is not doing the work. But what I think, and this goes back to my point about uh, ju- the justices' contradictions. I think what Scalia did more than anything else is give uh, conservatives a cudgel. Give them a tool to be able to say, if you're not following my way, not only are you incorrect, but you are illegitimate. Uh, And this goes back to the very first point you made about the kind of neo-Trumpian aspect of Scalia. His aim, he said, was to legitimize the court by giving the court neutral tools of interpretation, kind of take the judge's personal views out of the equation. But in the end, he used his uh, masterful, masterful use of language to harshly criticize uh, any justice who disagreed with them. And it wasn't just an ad hominem attack, although there were plenty of those. It was an attack on the legitimacy of what the, the other judges were doing. These justices were engaging as super legislators, and they were not being judges. And so I think that more than anything else is what survives. It's this idea that, well, we're not all reasonable people who might reasonably disagree. It's that if you disagree with me, uh, you are uh, you are not just wrong, you're usurping power that belongs to a different branch of the government. And, and there's such a Trumpian valence even there, right? I mean, you talk about his Obergefell dissent and some of his dissents where he's really kind of Samson-like tearing down the very pillars of the judicial, you know, calling people coastal elites and calling them out for being out of time. I mean, it really feels, again, like it's prefiguring what's about to come in terms of saying, I mean, I think you're quite right. It's one thing to say, I don't agree with Justice Ginsburg. It's quite another to say the entire judicial branch has been co-opted by these latte-sipping intellectuals, you know, at fancy law schools. And he really went there more and more toward the end of his career, right? He sure did. Uh, But, you know, he was, of course, a a graduate of Harvard Law School, whose uh, use of language, you know, is is the envy of of, of all of us, because, you know, he was, he was an elite uh, member of the elite himself. And yet he saw himself as outside of it. Uh, You know, he, he told biographer Joan Biskupic, uh, that, uh, you know, when he had to decide these affirmative action cases, it wasn't uh, Lewis Powell, who was the famous uh, 
swing justice in an earlier era. It wasn't Lewis Powell's kids that were going to suffer from affirmative action. It was the Polish factory workers' kids. You know, so here's Scalia, the elitist who goes to um, Harvard Law School and, and, and Georgetown, uh, railing against uh, you know the 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 ivory tower elites who are deciding the fate of the country. And um, you know, he definitely expressed the view that he saw himself in a in a in a very um, very different uh, way than uh, I think he was perceived by others on the outside. So that leads me to the second part of the question I had had teed up, which is how influential you ca- can you really be, Rick, if you're insulting Sandra Day O'Connor, if you're insulting Anthony Kennedy, if time and time again you are going after uh, your colleagues, sometimes individually. And I've written this piece that there were justices who tacked to the center and away from him in response to the personal attacks. But how much do you think that the sharp elbows really did limit his influence, if only because he couldn't get to five as often as he should have. Well, so this is a hard thing to prove. So, you know, some people have claimed in some of their books that Justice Scalia lost majorities because of his sharp edges, you know, saying things like, you know, Burgerfell. If I if I ever for the price of a fifth vote, I'd have to sign on to, and then he quotes some of Justice Kennedy's flowery language, I'd hide my head in a bag. And he said that, uh, you know, the, the language of the court had moved from, uh, you know, the great writings of Justice Story and Justice Marshall to the aphorisms of a fortune cookie. I couldn't find any evidence uh, that he ever lost a majority because of this. And, and the example that's often given is a, a case called Casey, which is a abortion rights case that I know you've talked about on other uh, episodes uh, but uh, the question is, would he have gotten more uh, important five to four decisions if he had used honey instead of vinegar to catch his flies? Hard to know. I don't know. But I think, you know, that's not how Scalia looked at it. He wasn't looking to be the Justice Brennan, what's it going to take to make a deal to get the five votes? He was writing for the future. He wrote his dissents, he said, so that they'd be read by law students, so that law professors like me would say, oh, I can't bore my students reading this long election law case with a Justice Breyer nine-part test. I need to put in there a, what Justice Scalia called a pizzazzy dissent from Justice Scalia, something perky that's going to get their attention. He wrote for the future, and now that's coming back to roost. And I I think we shouldn't uh, over emphasize the the um the room within which uh originalist and textualist argument moves yes it leads to some surprises as in the criminal procedure cases i talk about in the book but most of the time as i show justice scalia's originalism and so far justice gorsuch's originalism leads to conservative results in a vast variety of cases and justice thomas's originalism so you'll get a, you'll get the occasional surprise but the general trend is in a very politically conservative direction and in a direction that uh you know allows the court to be more polarizing than i think the court was in the past I mean, even looking at oral argument, which is another point I make in the book, before Scalia was on the court, uh, oral argument at the Supreme Court was a pretty sleepy affair where someone could speak for 10 or 15 minutes without getting interrupted. Now you have Chief Justice Roberts playing traffic cop, trying to let everyone get a chance to speak. And, you know, I think Scalia and the and I should say the polarizing nature of, of the times really contributed to that change. And so it's a different court now, and Scalia's influence is likely to be uh, greater because 
uh, now that we've stripped out some of the problems with what Scalia has done, and we're left with kind of the essence of the person and the basics of his methodology, he's going to further be deified, and his methodology is going to be used by conservatives to lead to conservative results in most cases. And I should just point out, what Scalia did was offered relatively simple soundbite-like solutions to difficult constitutional problems. It's really hard to sell if you're a Justice Breyer or Justice Kagan on the left, and you say, well, what's my method of constitutional interpretation? Well, it's complicated. You look at text, you look at history, you look at purpose, you look at you know general social trends, and you make an opinion that you think is fair. That's a really hard sell, and it sounds like the judge is just making policy out of nowhere. And I don't think that's a fair criticism, but I think that is how interpretation on the left is viewed by those who buy into the more simplistic Scalian notions of what it is to be a judge or a justice. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, dear Amicus listener. Because I like you, here's a little tip. If you join our membership program, Slate Plus, you can enjoy this and all of Slate's wonderful podcasts ad-free. Imagine you'd be supporting our work at the same time, ad-free, and supporting journalism when, when there is a free trial to be found at slateplus.com slash amicus. And now back to the show. And we are back now with Rick Hassan to discuss his new book about Scalia. I think I probably wrote years ago, even before Twitter was invented, that Scalia essentially was writing for Twitter, you know, in these 140 character, very, very digestible. You know, it was always uh, the top seven Scalia zingers from oral argument, the top nine Scalia zingers from I mean, I do think that he and you talk a little bit about the the rock star status, you know, that he is emblematic of justices suddenly willing to go on television and give speeches and, you know, travel the country and that that I think is of a piece with what you're describing is he was writing for the future. He was writing for law students. He was also writing for the masses. I mean, he was doing, you know, kind of Fox News style, very clever turns of phrase uh, before the rest of us were in, in a sense. I think it was also Trumpian, right? I think I think that's absolutely right. Although you know he's much more talented than Trump in terms of turning a phrase. Uh, you know, uh, let's take the most uh, popular opinion of Scalia among those on the left, which is Morrison versus Olson about the special counsel statute. You know, that's where Scalia said, "This wolf comes as a wolf," as opposed to a wolf coming in sheep's clothing. I mean, that is memorable. I mean, I think that's great writing. Uh, as much as Urban may disagree with me, uh, you know, on the general point, uh, because, you know, often the language was used as a barb against someone else. But you're right, he did know how to turn a phrase. And this, too, is how he changed the view of the justice. So the justice no longer being cloistered and, and, and unseen. Although they're still unseen because their oral arguments are not uh, uh, recorded for video and broadcast. But he was out there as a public intellectual in a way that no justices were. So before this, there were justices in the 1960s like Justice Douglas and Justice Goldberg that would give speeches – 
Uh, but they weren't talking about the court's business. They weren't talking about jurisprudence. They weren't saying things like, I like my constitution dead, 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 or about Bush versus Gore, the case that ended the 2000 Florida uh, election, get over it. I mean, these are sound bites. These are literally sound bites of things that can be recorded and played on TV. I mean, this is what he was doing. And, uh, you know, I actually blame Scalia for what I consider to be Justice Ginsburg's very unfortunate comments in the summer of 2016, uh, arguing against the election of Donald Trump to be president. I'm sure that um, it's, you know, I think it's fine for her to have those views. But as a sitting Supreme Court justice, who could have been hearing cases involving Clinton versus Trump, uh, where there would be calls for her recusal, and there would be good grounds for recusal based on uh, those statements that were made. I really think that it was Scalia setting the path of the intemperate judicial remark that that laid the groundwork for something like what Justice Ginsburg did. And, you know, I, I hope that that trend doesn't continue. I'd much rather see the justices out there in a more temperate way, still educating the public, still doing things about civics education, but not being the gladiator for their side. You know, we have our justices, they have theirs. Our justices show up to this conference, their justices show up to that conference, and ours are smart and theirs are evil. I mean, that really seems to be the way the tone of conversation is these days. First of all, I have to completely concede that, like you, I got through law school reading Scalia opinions and just doubled over in mirth and joy that anyone could write this way. So I, you know, I, I too cop to the fact that I loved it. It is eminently readable and eminently clear. And, you know, when you're in the morass of jargon, to have somebody write crisply and clearly is charming. I would note that Elena Kagan does the same thing with fewer punches in the mouth. Um, but I Although do- she has some. She definitely has some punches in the mouth, which I think that Scalia was responsible for. So in one case, the, the uh, Arizona campaign finance case from a few years ago, uh, the majority says it found a smoking gun indicating an impermissible intent. And, and Justice Kagan says, this, this, the majority says it's found smoke here, but the only smoke here is the kind that goes with mirrors. I mean, I really can't imagine Kagan would have written that if it were not for Scalia. So I think that you have now highlighted this paradox, which I find in the book and generally in my coverage of the court, which is what Scalia was selling was incredibly attractive, right? It was the neutral umpire. It was the person who the minute he puts his robes on, the minute she puts her robes on, they become a machine and everything they were before doesn't matter. And they're utterly predictable and also utterly neutral because they're using the tools of textualism, original public meaning, originalism, whatever you want to call it. And that's unbelievably comforting in a branch of government with lifetime tenure and uh, with no uh, ability to to check them. And so I think that he taps into an anxiety about unelected judges running amok, you know, all the language he uses about elites who are superimposing their view of the world on uh, the masses. And he taps into that anxiety. And the paradox, Rick, tell me if you agree, 
is that in so doing, he becomes kind of larger than life. So that the very neutrality that he's promoting, he's trying to answer this question of public anxiety about judges as, as sort of big personalities who dominate the space rather than fading back. He actually becomes exactly that. And not only that, I think you've just made this point. Sotomayor is that now. And, and uh, you know, Ginsburg is certainly that now. And I think in some ways uh, he blazed the trail to say, oh, don't worry about uh, us. We're perfectly neutral, but also jazz hands. And that's where we live now. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, here he was on uh, C-SPAN being interviewed by his friend Brian Lamb and talking about how his bobblehead is the most uh, uh, requested bobblehead from the green bag. Uh, That's kind of like a Trumpian boast, isn't it? You know, my bobblehead's the greatest. You know, uh, nobody no, nobody wants any other justice besides me. You know, and he really kind of mugged for the camera all the while. And he's complaining to Brian Lamb that, you know, he didn't ask for the celebrity, but he's been, uh, you know, his arm has been twisted that he should go out there and sell his jurisprudence and, and sell his books to, just to fight back against, uh, you know, the scurrilous comments that were made against him. But it seemed to me that he loved it, and he loved being out there. You know, you could see it at oral argument. He was, you know, I would say he's mugging for the cameras, but there were no cameras, but he was always going for the joke, and he was always, uh, you know, interrupting in order to show off. Um, And, uh, you know, being a showman like that, and yet claiming the judge's job is this uh, job to be kind of a, a, a neutral craftsman, uh, of the law, uh, there was definitely a huge disconnect there between what he said he was doing and what he actually did. And yet another one of these great contradictions of who Justice Scalia was. So that's a perfect segue, Rick, for your chapter about culture comp and, you know, how Scalia uh, positions himself, particularly, I think, on the question of gay rights and the ways he writes about uh you know again liberal elites and the professor class and uh the reality where he lives on the ground as he portrays it and i think in that chapter and i know you've gotten uh, blowback i think you're trying to make a version of the point you just made which is for somebody who is purporting to just neutrally a- apply the constitution he sure had a lot of inflammatory things to say uh over his career uh, about some of the disadvantaged minorities who came before him, right? Well, you know, I'd say his biggest comments uh, that, uh, or his most controversial comments were comments about race and about gay rights. And so one of the things he said, and you pointed this out, I think he became less temperate in his final years. Uh, during oral arguments in one of the cases involving the constitutionality of a part of the Voting Rights Act, uh, he's, try- he, he's trying to explain why he shouldn't defer to Congress. Congress passes, the Senate passes the Voting Rights Act renewal 98 to 0, and he says this is somehow suspect. And the reason it happens is because of what we call the perpetuation of racial entitlements. Look it up. Um, and, and then at, at an ar- uh, argument involving affirmative action in higher education. He talks about what we should do about uh, the the really competent blacks and the less competent blacks. And just, just kind of the way he talked, I don't think there was any kind of recognition uh, that what he was saying was 
would be seen by people in those communities and others as disparaging. Same with gay rights when he would talk about the homosexual agenda. Um, and, you know, one of the things I explore in the book for which, you know, I think it is hard to reach a definitive conclusion is, did Scalia have animus towards these groups? Did he have animus towards uh, gay individuals? And you know, when he made a statement in uh, at, at Princeton in, uh, I think it was 2012, you know, a few years before his death, where he says something like, um, uh, if, if I can't have, uh, if we can't have moral disapproval against homosexuality, can we have it against murder? Uh, again, as he had in, in an earlier case, compared laws against murder and to laws against bestiality and, and laws against, um, uh, gay sex. Uh, what, what he, what he does there is, I think, not just decides cases as a judge, but is engaging himself in the culture wars and is um, in some ways denigrating the groups that should be getting dignity before him. Uh, and so I talk about how one year he had a counter clerk uh, who uh, tried to get him to tone down, uh, we think, because the counter clerk can't exactly admit to what he did when he was on the court. Get, the counter clerk apparently got Scalia to tone down some of his uh, anti-gay rhetoric in one of his cases. The idea that you would need a clerk to do this does suggest, at the very least, a kind of insensitivity. He was someone who was part of the culture wars, who said he listened to talk radio, who couldn't read the Washington Post anymore because it was so shrilly, shrilly liberal, to quote him. Uh, it was, you know, this was somebody who was both uh, a polarizing figure and a creature of polarization. So this is an interesting academic study, which came out after um, my uh, manuscript was in, which uh, basically says that uh, this is a uh, uh, Lawrence Baum new book. If you're if you're trying to understand where the judges uh, come from, that where the justices get their views, you have to recognize they are products of a certain elite, and they listen to the other elite lawyers, and they basically are exposed to the same things. You know, you've got a Fox News justice and an MSNBC justice now, because they're also consuming media in a much more partisan way, and that affects their their outlook. And I, I think you hear it in the questions that compare what Justice Sotomayor asks at oral argument to what Justice Alito, it's as if they're on different planets when you hear the kinds of questions they ask. And so I think, you know, this all goes back to the question of, you know, how do you as a judge disentangle yourself from this polarization? And Scalia said he did so, but in some ways he was least able to do so among all the justices. Well, so 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 one quick thing, and I you just mentioned it, but it's worth saying. I think Justice Scalia did uh, go out of his way to have counter clerks, and and that became rare to have clerks who uh, didn't agree with you. He also had this much much vaunted friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, that transcended ideology. I mean, there were not a lot of, and I think you mentioned Elena Kagan too in that friendship. There are not a lot of deep friendships at the court that. Uh, transcend the MSNBC Fox uh, dialectic you've just posited. That has to speak well for him that he wanted to constantly expose himself to diverging viewpoints, right? Well, I don't know that he wants to expose himself to divergent viewpoints as much as he wanted to be able to have uh, socially amicable relationships with people 
who had different political views. I don't know how much he and Ginsburg talked politics. I'm guessing not very much. Uh, it was interesting. I was at a, a dinner after a talk that Justice Kagan gave at Chicago Kent back in, I think it was back in October. And uh, someone asked her about the, you know, are, are there friendships across the aisle? And she talked about Scalia and going hunting with Scalia and all of that. And then the follow-up question was, what about other justices? And her response was, I really liked Justice Scalia. <laughs> I thought that said a lot. Um, although you did have Justice Sotomayor suggesting recently uh, that, um, you know, she felt in some ways closest to Justice Thomas, uh, which is interesting because they both come from poor minority backgrounds and maybe they can relate to each other on a personal level, even though their, uh, you know, their jurisprudence could not be further apart. Um, it does suggest this, this, this compartmentalization that some justices are able to do, which I think many of us today in this hyperpolarized era have a hard time doing. It's interesting. I was there at that speech when Sotomayor said that. And one of the things that she highlighted was that Thomas is, you know, that his persona on the bench is so controlled and closed down. And, you know, he's more or less on screen save for every oral argument. And yet in the, you know, walking through the halls of the court and walking through the cafeteria, you know, he's this gregarious, beloved, charming character. And I think that one of the things at least one could say about Scalia is, he was exactly the person uh, on the bench that he was at a dinner party or at a speech. I mean, he was incredibly consistent in so far as his demeanor, his public and and private demeanor were exactly the same. Yeah, I think that, you know, at least from uh, the way it appeared, I, sh I should point out, you did mention this. This is not a biography. I never interviewed the justice. This is not kind of trying to delve into his psyche. What I'm trying to do is kind of give a, a biography of his ideas or kind of an intellectual history and ask what his legacy is going to be. And, you know, long after people forget his persona on the bench, what's going to live on is uh, his methodology and his kind of the roadmap he set for delegitimizing what his opponents were doing. And so I think some of some of what was admired about Justice Scalia is likely to fade before the more controversial parts of Justice Scalia are likely to fade. And if you think about, you know, will he be remembered as a great justice the way some people might think about, you know, John Marshall or Oliver Wendell Holmes, who, uh, despite Buck versus Bell and, and some other cases, uh, you know, is, is seen pretty uh, in a pretty good light uh, these days. I think because we're in, we're in such a polarized time, it's going to be that he will be loved or he will be hated, uh, depending on people's political views. But he would not, he, he's unlikely to be universally admired uh, the way some of these other justices were. And I think that's probably true for Justice Ginsburg as well. You know, the justices who are the heroes on one side are really the villains on the other. Before we walk away from your uh, culture conf and your um, sort of animus discussion, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to the fact that it seems to me this is almost another way in which Scalia becomes a very... Uh, very sort of pre-Trumpian Trump character. And that is in part, you know, I think uh, you were very honest just now when you said, I, I don't know if he bore animus. I'm All I can do is recount what he said in various speeches and, and in opinions. But isn't there a way in which his answer to that would be, it doesn't matter 
because I am a neutral umpire. And so whatever I may have said in a speech, you know, has nothing, no bearing whatsoever to do on this project of being a justice. And it seems it just feels, you know, like such a a Trumpian turn to say, oh, it doesn't matter what I tweet or what I say, because I'm just the president. So I, I wonder if there's some level at which this is a devaluing of language itself that is really complicated when it comes from a Supreme Court justice. Well, Scalia was very careful to couch his terminology. So he wouldn't say, I have moral uh, disapproval of homosexuality. He would say, it's permissible for people to have moral disapproval of homosexuality and pass laws that, for example, bar sodomy, make it a crime because they're allowed to express their moral disapproval. So he's not saying whether he does or does not have that moral disapproval himself. But in the end, I think it doesn't matter. And I think if you want to ask, where does Scalia's jurisprudence lead? You have to ask what the results are. And if you look at what the results are, they present a very conservative political picture, regardless of what methodology he said he was applying, regardless of what animus he may have had. He voted against gay rights in virtually every case. Uh, he voted in favor of um, groups, uh, governments that wanted to engage in religious activities in almost every case. He voted uh, in favor of abortion restrictions in every case. He voted um, against uh, expansion of voting rights uh, in virtually every case. And so who cares if he had the personal animus at some level? If you're asking, what does the jurisprudence lead to? What is his legacy? It was, with, again, some notable exceptions, as in the criminal procedure area, a deeply conservative vision, one that, for example, would say that um, Congress does not have the power to protect minority voters uh, from discrimination in a lot of ways in the voting context, and does have the power, for example, to take away a woman's right to get an abortion uh, under virtually all circumstances. Uh, And so that's really the way of measuring where he ends up. We can argue what he meant by this sentence or that sentence, but we know how he voted. And that is a better indication of where he ends up than anything else. So I want to ask you... uh the book is, you know, the, the the book is titled The Justice of Contradictions. And some of the contradictions you and I have teased out uh, in the last hour have been, you know, that he presents as this really nice guy, but he's completely bombastic and sharp. And he presents as an originalist, except he's not always originalist. Uh, and we think he was this deeply impactful a uh, great jurisprudential figure who may not have the impact that we thought he would. Are, are there other contradictions that we haven't talked about that uh, you found in this deep dive? Well, the only other one I would highlight, which we've talked about, but you didn't just mention there, is um, he bemoaned the lack of civility in society, and yet no justice was more caustic or sarcastic in his opinions. I mean, the kinds of things that he wrote were things that you just don't normally hear in Supreme Court opinions. And so in that way, again, back to the neo-Trumpian theme, uh, he would use language in a way to denigrate or debase his opponents in a way that was not acceptable. That's That's another way that he disrupted the Supreme Court. We're dealing at the Supreme Court level with some of the most difficult social, legal, and political issues in uh, in American society. 
And I think most of the justices believe it's very important to have these discussions about how to resolve them in a respectful way and to preserve kind of the rule of law and legitimacy of the courts by respectfully dissenting and respectfully disagreeing. Scalia left that respect out, even while he said that, uh, you know, he wanted to see greater civility. He complained about ladies saying the F word on TV. Literally, that was one of the things he complained about. And yet, um, the language he used on the court, I think, is much more debasing of our society than hearing the F word on TV, whether coming from a man or a lady. It, I, I'm so fighting the impulse to drop the F-bomb right now, Rick, just for some commemorative. This is a family podcast. It is a family podcast. Don't, don't do it. So I want to ask you a ridiculously fanciful question that occurred to me while I was reading uh, your really, really marvelous book. And if it's too fanciful, just say – you can say the F-word, Dahlia. But um, <laughs> what do you think uh, Antonin Scalia would think of President Donald Trump? So uh, we do have a little bit of information uh, about that, uh, because there's another book that came out um, recently by Brian Garner, who's a la- language guru and friend of Scalia, co-author of a book called Reading Law, which is kind of like a recipe book for statutory interpretation. Um, and he said that Scalia was intrigued by Trump. Uh, and we know that um, Scalia's widow had Trump signs out on her lawn. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there'd be some things that Trump has done, which would be abhorrent to Scalia, but there were many ways in which he, uh, really fulfilled the kind of populist nationalist vision that Scalia offered. So, you know, could you separate Trumpism from Trump? He'd probably be fairly happy with a lot of Trumpism, maybe not so happy with Trump the person. And, uh, you know, you if you think about one of his last dissents uh, in a case involving Arizona's immigration law, uh, the quotes from that about hordes of immigrants coming over the border and taking Americans' jobs and threatening violence, it really could have come out of Trump's mouth. And so there were a lot of things that they had in common. Uh, you know, Scoo was very strong for the death penalty, believed that uh, enemy combatants who were not American citizens were really not entitled to very much uh, protection under the Constitution. Uh, he was against expansion of rights for people. In many ways, uh, his program was a Trumpian program, even if he might have found Donald Trump to be repulsive in certain ways. Rick Hassan is professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. His book is The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption. And his election law blog is a must read all the time. Uh, Rick, uh, thank you. It's, I always have you on the show to explain vote suppression and gerrymandering. It is nice to have you here to explain the inscrutable Justice Antonin Scalia. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. And that about wraps it up for this Scalia edition of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to get in touch, our email, as ever, is amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We love your feedback. Thank you. Keep it coming. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we'll be back with you with another episode of Amethyst in two weeks.